Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird. This podcast is brought to you by The Joyful Fashionista, an online marketplace for buying and selling secondhand and sustainable clothing. Make cash selling as you declutter or buy sustainable and fabulous fashion. You, my frugalistas, and welcome. Today, I have a special guest, and of course, all of my guests are special. Today's guest is someone who knows a lot of knowledge about personal finances and has written not one, but five books about money. Emily Guy Birkin has worn lots of hats throughout her career temporary tattoo artist, bookseller, AmeriCorps volunteer, and teacher. She's also a huge money nerd. In 2010, she turned her excitement about spreadsheets into a career, and she's now a Plutus award-winning freelance writer in the financial sphere. Her work has appeared in HuffPo, Business Insider, Kipling's Personal Finance, MSN Money, and The Washington Post. So these are the five books she's authored, just to get a sense for just how incredible her knowledge base is. The Five Years Before You Retire, Choose Your Retirement, Making Social Security Work For You, End Financial Stress Now, and the newly released book, Stacked, Your Super Serious Guide to Modern Money Management, which she has co-written with Joe Saul Sayi. Welcome, Emily. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for being on this podcast. As I said to you earlier, I'm just a huge fan of your work from afar, from here in Australia, and I really appreciate you taking the time to share your wisdom with the joyful Frugalister listeners. I am so glad to be here. So you've had just such an amazing money career, and obviously you didn't quite start out like that from the beginning. So (laughs) how did you get to writing about money? I like to tell people that I tripped and fell backwards into it. Um, so because I'm actually an English teacher by training, I majored in English and French literature because I was very woefully literary in my early 20s. Then I ended up getting a master's degree in English education and I taught high school English for four years. And then because I'm really good at timing, my husband and I decided to move because he got a new job after my fourth year of teaching when I was also pregnant with our first child who was due at the beginning of the next school year. Mm -hmm. So because of all of that, I knew I was not going to get a teaching job right away because um, even though they couldn't legally not hire me, no one was going to hire me to immediately go on maternity leave. Mm -hmm. So the original plan was that I was just going to stay home with the baby for one year and then go back to the classroom. In addition to my wonderful timing in terms of when we decided to move and have a kid, We also had trouble selling our first house. It took us 11 months to sell the house that um, we left behind in in Columbus, Ohio. We went from two incomes to one, two family members to three, (laughs) one mortgage to two. Things were a little tight. So I decided to start looking for some work that I could do from home. I have always been a writer and I was like, all right, I'll do some some, uh, freelance writing just bring a little bit of money in, kind of help help ease the, the the burden of what we're going through right now. And one of the first writing gigs that I landed was for a financial website. That was not my expectation or intention at all. I thought I'd be writing about education, parenting, travel, food, mm-hmm. you know, all of the usual things that you think of. But my father was a financial planner. So I grew up in the industry. And so the, this wasn't completely out of nowhere for me. 
And I've always been, as I said, a money nerd. Um, never occurred to me that my money nerdery could be something I could make a career. Several uh, pieces for that financial website, one or two of them kind of went mini viral. I mean, that's like <laughs> viral in, in the financial well. world, which means, yeah, tens of people saw them. It was amazing. I'm sure so. a lot more than that, but yeah, I know what you mean. For a long time in Australia too, finance wasn't cool, but now we've had a book, uh, sadly not mine, but The Barefoot Investor that's had over 1 million copies sold. I think they're mm-hmm. probably closer to two now. And like, I think mm-hmm. it really took the bookseller world by surprise because they didn't expect yes. that a finance topic would do so well. But I think what they hadn't realized was just how many Australian families in particular were really struggling. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that's that's something that I've seen over and over again is there's this sense of finance is one thing. It's this very like dry, nerdy thing. And so it doesn't sell books. It doesn't make viral videos or viral blog posts. And that's really not what it is. I mean, that that's what it be and what's traditionally finance may have been. But there, I think in part because of the internet, there's this big opening up of new voices in, mm. in the financial sphere. And I think that was part of what's what helped me kind of get traction early on was that that's uh, my that editor liked my work and passed my name to his friends, invited me to the first FinCon, which is a financial media conference. Um, that's been going on since 2011. To go this year, and I'm really excited about it. And I don't know anyone, so I'm especially excited to meet you. And while we're on the topic of FinCon, I understand you have won a really important award through FinCon. Yes. So Plutus Awards, and there is a Plutus Foundation, and there's a, there's just a, a, a incredible ecosystem around uh, the Plutus Foundation. It is named after, I believe, a Greek god of money. Uh, it's one of those, like, I thought I knew the Greek myths pretty well, but that's not what I'm familiar with. <laughs> and so it started in, I believe, 2010 was the very first Plutus Awards. It was a very natural fit where it um, joined up with FinCon in 2011 for that first year of FinCon. So that was the second annual Plutus Awards, but the first ever FinCon in 2011. And so this uh, award, there are categories in all types of places. There's uh, different blog types. So family finance, single people finance, dual income, no kids. Then there's like investing blogs, millennial money blogs, blogs for parents. I mean, just, you know, all of these different categories. And then there's for podcasting, there's for vlogging, there's for books, freelancing, and just anything in the financial media sphere. And I was very, very gratified and just overwhelmed to win the award for Best Freelancer of the Year in 2018. Congratulations and well-deserved. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. And so that was just overwhelming. (laughs) It just never occurred to me that that would happen. Well, you obviously had done a great job about it and also done a great job in terms of making your money nerdiness for one of a better term. I know they use that a lot in FinCon, so I'm not suggesting you personally are a nerd at all. <laughs> I, I self-identify. <laughs> self-identify, but well done in terms of making that a full-time gig and sharing so much wisdom with so many people. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's been a wild ride and I can't imagine a better career for myself, honestly. There are, there are aspects of being a teacher that I miss very much. I feel like I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. You're still educating. That's the thing. Like education mm-hmm. comes in all different forms. And do you feel that you draw on your teaching skills in different ways? Oh, very much. Yes. So I know that if I had tried to become a freelance writer before being a teacher, 
it would have been a lot harder to, to get where I am. And that's partially because teaching helped me hone a bunch of skills that I think are really necessary when you're writing about something that is not necessarily everyone's cup of tea. So I learned how to kind of get my students excited and interested in Shakespeare when that is not at all what they want to be doing. (laughs) And I figured out ways to get them interested, even with with stuff like grammar, which is nobody likes grammar. (laughs) But I found ways to make it funny or silly or shocking, or even just a, a kind of routine that became like enjoyable because they were used to it. They knew what to expect. And so having that experience really helps me figure out ways to write about money, particularly the things that people don't want to talk about by bringing in something that's funny or silly or shocking or, or um, <laughs> helps, helps people feel comfortable in a, in a routine. That is all things that I, I, I know I didn't understand about writing prior to being a teacher. Mm. So moving on from, or building on rather, from this concept of making seemingly boring things funny, this is something you obviously do very well in your writing, which brings me to your latest book, which as you know, is titled Stacked, Your Super Serious Guide to Modern Money Management. So how super serious is the book? (laughs) So the book title, I'll tell you, we, we decided to call it Stacked, which it was, we'd finished the book. We knew the title. It was in production. I was having a conversation with my sister and she says to me, like, you do know stacked means big boobs, right? <laughs> well, I didn't know that, but I do now. <laughs> <laughs> so, and we're like, yes, we, we were kind of going for the, the ambiguity of the title, <laughs> but we knew we, we needed to have a, a subtitle and our editor suggested your funny guide to modern money management. And Joe, my co-author, and I both said, like, if you have to say it about yourself, it's not true. So if you say that your book is funny, then it's not true. So the same thing with, so we decided, like, let's flip that. Let's call it your super serious guide to modern money management. (laughs) Because if we have to say it's super serious, it's clearly not true. (laughs) Well, I was sort of not quite sure what to expect, but just even flicking through the chapter headings, I was like, oh my gosh, these people actually say this. Yeah, um, one of the one of my favorite stories about writing the book is a friend of Joe's asked him like after we turned in the the draft and and you know we're getting ready for the for the first round of edits he's like so so uh, like how many of the dick jokes did you write <laughs> said to Joe and Joe like was like surprisingly almost none of them Emily wrote almost all of them. <laughs> Well, <laughs> and so, and that, that is one other thing about having been a high school teacher. I, my sense of humor, I mean, I, I know that it has progressed from when I was 14, but there's still a little part of me that has that. I don't know if you remember Beavis and Butthead, but the, from, from MTV in the 90s. I do. I do. I'm wearing yeah, a red hot that. chili pepper shirt as we yeah. uh, pull over, as you'd say, as we are um, uh, podcasting. So yes, I do remember. <laughs> So, so there is, there is a part of me that still just goes, <laughs> so particularly when I, cause I, I, I am most known for writing about retirement. And so I will talk about which retirement withdrawal strategies. And I have to take a minute every time <laughs> about, like, the most responsible <laughs> withdrawal strategies. 
Well, um, yeah, well, we actually have a bit of a, that sort of sort of level of humour in my household because I have two boys and my husband is also a bit of a big child. So <laughs> everything mm-hmm. I say has to be censored. But, you know, like why not have fun with money? Like why does it have to mm-hmm. be so serious? Yeah, well, and that's that's part of where we're coming from for this is that we want money to be something that people think about with uh, with humor, with lightheartedness, an acceptance of mistakes rather than treating everything like it's life or death. One of the things I like to tell people is if you think of money as only slightly less fun than a colonoscopy, you're never going to deal with it. <laughs> so That is so true. And you say to people, you need a budget and you can just see them freaking out. Like even the word mm-hmm. freaks people out. Yes. I tend to flip it when I work with people and say, let's just not talk about it being budget. Let's just pretend it's mm-hmm. a, it's a forecasting tool put someone else's name on it, just have a bit of fun with it. Mm -hmm. But it is really hard because you sort of feel so much judgment about how you deal Mm -hmm. with money, how much money you have, Mm -hmm. how much money you don't have. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that's really interesting about writing about money and like being immersed in the, in the financial media sphere is the moment you realize that money doesn't really exist. So it's, it doesn't exist in nature. You can't eat it. You can't wear it. You can't build a house out of it. So you can't even spend it outside of where it's accepted as legal tender. It's actually just this delusion that we have all decided to share. And when you start thinking about that, I mean, some of this sounds like you're in your freshman dorm room going like, whoa, (laughs) (laughs) but that, that is really the truth because it's, it's this, this thing that doesn't exactly exist, but we are all tied to it and required to use it. And, and for, for good reason, because if we were stuck with bartering, like nothing would get done, you know, there's there, it would be impossible, but because there's, there's no like one meaning of what money is, we put our own meaning on it. We put our own neuroses, our own psychology, our own childhood trauma, our own Mm -hmm. mistakes, our own emotional issues. And so that means that something that could be relatively simple becomes very complicated because it's about how we feel about it rather than about how we can use it. And because we're so immersed in it, you know, it's like, you know, the fish not understanding the question of how's the water because we're so immersed in it. We don't recognize that Mm. this is something that, that we are putting on money instead of it being an immutable fact about money. And oftentimes we most often will see that when people get it into a, a long-term relationship, get married or something like that, where all of a sudden your two different meanings of money are, are butting heads. Yeah. And then you have children and all those money oh. issues come up as yes. well, inherited beliefs. Yes, exactly. And that's when people actually start going like, well, wait a minute, you know, we, we can't do that because that's not how money works. And the other person's like, of course, that's how money works. We have to do that. And that is is often the first time that we really recognize that there is a difference in how people treat money. And unfortunately, because as a society, we don't like talking about money. We don't often go from there to be like, oh, okay, I'm putting my assumptions. You're putting your assumptions. Let's like try to let go of any assumptions that are harmful and build some assumptions together that are going to help us. We tend to be like, no, you're wrong. I'm right. (laughs) And because we don't talk about it and we don't have a context for kind of letting go of these stressful assumptions that we're making and, and finding a way to mesh with, uh, with our, our significant other or, you know, whatever's going to work in our, our lives better. Mm. How do we go about then talking about money? And given that there are different values around money and there's different assumptions you go into a relationship, how mm-hmm. then do you start having those conversations? 
It's really tough. And I think it's helpful to start in a way that's like, again, you don't want to like, all right, let's sit down and talk money. This is going to be serious conversation. You are spending too much money and you are the problem. Yes. I mean, it's not going to go very well for a relationship. is yes. it? <laughs> exactly. And that's often how things I, I can remember early in our marriage, I was going to a cousin's wedding and I had gotten this gorgeous dress. Um, at <laughs> I knew where this thrift- was headed. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the dress was from a thrift store. So, um, so I, was, I was really proud of it. I spent like no more than like $30 on the dress, but then I needed shoes to go with it. And the shoes were going to be $80. Not a small amount of money for a pair of shoes I was going to wear once. Mm-hmm. But in my head, the way that I think of money is like you show up for family you spend what you need to spend to make it clear how much you care. Spending money on family events like weddings, that's important. You know, like that's yeah, that's worth eating ramen for a few weeks if you have to. Not that we were in that kind of situation, but that is is the way that I was raised to to, to view money. Whereas my husband, when I came home with the, the, like he was super psyched that I found a $30 gorgeous dress, but came home with $80 shoes. And he's just like, Oh my goodness, what is, what, what is going on? How are we going to deal with this? And I was just like, it's, I, it's my cousin's wedding. I have to, I have to have these shoes. And we just, we just couldn't comprehend each other. And so those sorts of things, they, they're going to happen and it's, it's going to be helpful. Now he was more of the, like, I don't understand rather than like, this is wrong which was very, very helpful. And, and coming at it from a, like, this doesn't make sense to me, help me understand, mm-hmm. I think is really, really a great way to approach it. And is tough because money is such a sensitive issue. Yeah, It is something that can really trigger our fears and concerns. I could definitely tell he wasn't pleased, but he was not coming at it as like, oh my goodness, this is going to ruin things. What about exactly. our budget or anything like that? Because yeah. it could have been very easy for him to have come home and said, oh, those shoes are ugly. How dare you mm-hmm. spend this money? Don't you know how important our finances mean? You always do this. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It could have been yeah. any of the above. Yeah. And so so that, I think that was the first time I really had an understanding of how different our, our value systems were. Because I, I, for the most part, we meshed pretty well. I had a similar thing. Several years later, another cousin of mine got married and was taking some time to, uh, I made her a quilt. And was taking some time away from my paid work to work on the quilt. And my husband was just like, is that really? And I'm like, this is my, my cousin's getting married. She needs this wonderful present. That was the first time because otherwise we were very much in, in alignment on like how we feel about family, how we feel mm. about money, spending, things like that. But there are these differences and they're going to cause friction sometimes. Oh, yeah. I, I hear you. We've booked on a very expensive <laughs> cruise for December. And it's because my mother-in-law really wanted to go. She really, Mm -hmm. really wanted to go with the family. And my husband has very strong family values. And he's like, my parents Mm -hmm. are old. They're not going to be with us forever. And Mm -hmm. cruises really mean a lot to her. So I sort of went, you know, I have a value around. (laughs) I didn't go on a lot of holidays when I was growing growing up. And a parent for a long time after going through domestic violence. So we didn't have a lot of spare money. So I'm like, Mm-hmm. Save, 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 save. Mm-hmm. So that was very challenging for me, but I have to understand that was the different value and where he's coming from. And I'm mm-hmm. sure it'll be mm-hmm. a fabulous, albeit very expensive cruise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and that's um, what I have also found. Like uh, it was, I think probably about a year after the, 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 the shoe wedding incident, 
it was completely unrelated. Like I wasn't even thinking about this, but my husband and I were on a road trip and we have this bad habit of you put me in a car for more than four hours, tears will, 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 <laughs> at some point I'll start crying. And so we try to avoid that. So I don't know what it is, something about uh, long road trips. That is really unusual. I've never heard of that before. <laughs> I think it's, I think what it is is like, I just, four hours is my limit in a car. And after that, I'm just like, I just don't want to be in here anymore. <laughs> So once, once we had podcasts, cause this was back in the early 2000s. So like, if you didn't have a good curated CD collection or you're like, whatever, or if you're driving an older car that didn't have a good radio or anything like that, I think it had more to do with that. Cause now that we've got books on audio, we've got uh, podcasts, we've got, you know, music on demand doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> I think it's really like my boredom level at, uh, at four, four hours is just too much. <laughs> So we were trying very hard to avoid that. So we're, we're trying to have like fun, like car games. One, and I don't, I think he's the one who suggested it. He was just like, all right, let's like top 10 vacation de- destinations. Like, where do you want to travel to in, in your life? Go. And we went back and forth. Like, you know, I want to go here. I want to go here. And we spent like a, just a, just a delightful two hours just talking about the places we wanted to go. Well, his number one destination is the Le Mans 24 hour car race in Le Mans, France. So he, he's an automotive engineer, got his start because he was interested in Formula One racing. And so he loves the idea of, of the just engineering challenge of this, of this race. I love the idea of France. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, let's do this. So it was about a week later after the end of that road trip, I said, how about we start setting money aside every month so that we can go to Le Mans some year or sometime. And he's like, mm, okay, I don't know. I mean, like he, he doesn't think about saving money the way that I do. And he doesn't like kind of project ahead the way that I do, but that that's kind of how I do things. And so I was like, all right, let, let's do this. We're just, you know, hundred bucks a month. We, we can, we can spare that. We'll put it into a high yield um, savings account and just kind of see where it goes. And so, so we did. And after a few years, we had quite a bit of money there. Unfortunately, after a few years, we also had children who were very picky. (laughs) So we haven't (laughs) been yet. (laughs) But you've got the money that's set aside to do that. Yes. And so by seeing how well that worked, that actually really brought him on board with the way that I handled money because it just never occurred to him that this could work the way that it, it it did that it could, you know, we could quietly without really thinking about it and without it affecting our, the way our day-to-day living set money aside so that we could do something really fun later on. And so once that kind of was going, we started applying it to other things that maybe weren't as, as much fun. For instance, he had a home equity line of credit for the house that he lived in when we got, we first got married. I was like, I'm, I'm uncomfortable having that home equity line of credit. I'd like us to work on getting that paid off. For a while, we lived on his income and used mine to pay off the, the HALOC. And that, again, that was something where it just hadn't occurred to him that you could do that. And so, so doing these things kind of helped bring him on board with the way that I do things. And then being open about these conversations helped me see things from his point of view that I wouldn't have noticed if I hadn't, if we hadn't had these conversations. Yeah, it is amazing how when you set a goal, how things do build up and how those little bits do make a difference. Here in Australia, we have something called superannuation. And 
My husband has a very good work superannuation, but he it, there's a there's a particular quirk about it that there's a particular limit and he can't contribute anymore. So he set up a second fund and he's put a very small amount into that. He's been doing that now for all four years, two years. We just set and forget and we're just always amazed at how it just sort of gathers momentum and we're like, we don't even miss that money mm-hmm. and he can't access it until he's 60 years of age. But, you know, mm-hmm. that, that'll be a cruise or that'll be a trip to Europe or that'll be something that we haven't even missed that money at all and it'll be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so hard to wrap your head around like how much little bits add up to, and particularly with compound interest. I, I feel like you can only really understand compound interest in the rearview mirror. Like, you no, know, I, I, I remember when I was in high school, my, my freshman year of high school, my social studies teacher had a, a class lesson about compound interest. And if anyone in that class was going to get it, it was going to be me. And I remember thinking like, oh, this is really interesting. But I did not feel the urgency of it. No, you don't. And 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 I don't know if there's any way to 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 help people understand the urgency of, of it because it's it's something where you understand it so much better in the rearview mirror when you go like, oh wow, I was only setting aside like 50 bucks every other week and look at how much it's worth now. Whereas at the time you're like, eh, it's 50 bucks or eh, it's just a little bit of money. What's it going to matter? And it's very, very hard to look at it in a forward way. Whereas when you can look at it from, from the rear view, you go like, oh, wow, that did something huge. And I couldn't have imagined or predicted that at the beginning. Yeah. And it's so easy to go, well, I'll just wait till I've got a better job or I'll just wait until mm-hmm. my kids grow up or I just wait until this. Or you really have to start now, don't you? Oh, yes. Yes. So I have one final question for you, which is, do you have a frugalista tip to share? I'm sure you have lots and lots of tips for sharing money, but do you have something, perhaps something funny, perhaps something quirky, well, or perhaps mm-hmm. something you use frequently at home? So I think my, my biggest frugalista tip is, is actually kind of counterintuitive, which is figure out what you want to spend money on. So something that you always feel good about spending money on. And then that makes it easier to let go of the things that don't matter so much. For me, I I have a couple things that I really like. It doesn't matter how much I have. I'm always happy to get more. And that's uh, fun socks, <laughs> um, uh, blank notebooks. I actually, I live by the credo that she who dies with the most blank notebooks wins. <laughs> And funny mugs. And so that is something where like, I, 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 I like knowing that those are the things where like, if I feel like I want to buy myself something to spend money, uh, for one thing, all three of them are relatively low cost. But for another, I know that that's something that's going to make me feel good. Whereas if I didn't know that, I might go chasing that feeling with like a chocolate chip cookie, which feels good at the time. But, you know, an hour later, I'll be like, I wish I hadn't done that. <laughs> Or I might um, might try for something that's new clothes or or something else. So that for me is I think the 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 basis of being frugal is figuring out what is worth it to spend money on for you, and then you know that you can let go of everything else. So if something catches your eye, you're like, "Ooh, that looks cute," and then you go, mm, "Would that make me as happy?" as like the last time I purchased a blank notebook. No, I don't think it would. All right. I don't need it. 
Then you've got to be aware of all the blank notebooks. <laughs> yeah, that, yes. <laughs> you can always word people up. And the thing is when they know that what you like, they know you like notebooks, then you that tend too, to get them yes. for presents. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do. And I actually, the other thing about um, having so many blank notebooks is I sometimes will give them away too. So I'll have them and sometimes I'll be like, oh, this one would be perfect for my friend Natalie. And like, you know, that'll, and, and so that's also an aspect of it. It's one of the reasons why I like having these sorts of the same thing with mugs. I don't give my socks away, but <laughs> you know, if I have a, if I have this ridiculous mug with a, uh, a mermaid on it that says strong women make waves. And I, and you know, I, I have this feeling like I'm going to meet someone who needs it more than I do, <laughs> you know, and I'll pass it along. Um, and those, those sorts of things I think are just, you're going to have a lot more fun and you're going to feel, and frugality is going to feel more like freedom mm-hmm. if you have these like line items in your budget that you, where you you can say yes. Mm. So say yes to the things that bring you joy. Love it. Yes. Well, thank you so much for being my guest. Now, a lot of my readers in Australia are probably wanting to know where to reach you. I'm not sure if your new book is available in Australia yet, but you can still buy it from Amazon and have it shipped from the US and hopefully they'll bring mm-hmm. out a Kindle or electronic version. Yes. Yeah. I, uh, unfortunately I have very little control over that aspect of it, but I will definitely let, let my publisher know that there, there are, there are people in Australia who, who are would waiting really for the like to read it and I really have, um, and Australians have quite a cheeky sense of humor. So I think they would really get your book, at least we would in our household. Yes, that would be amazing. So, well, I, I do want to let your listeners know that if you go to my website, um, emilyguybirkin.com, forward slash TJF for the Joyful Frugalista. I have a welcome page there and I'll have a couple of different PDFs. One is about figuring out what money means to you. And there's also links for how to buy my books and also how to, to reach me. So that welcome page is, uh, is specifically for your listeners. But you can also reach me um, on Twitter at Emily Guy Birkin. I'm also on Instagram at Emily Guy Birkin. And on Facebook, and it's author Emily Guy Birkin. Thank you so much. That's a very generous offer for the listeners of the Joyful Frugalista. Thank you so much for being my guest. And for the listeners out there, if you've enjoyed this podcast as much as I have and have laughed as much as I have, please join the Joyful Frugalista Facebook group and participate in the conversations. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. Course Sound has been by Neil Hadley.
Stop.